On today's Believe in Chicago Sports podcast, we try to get a little more optimistic about the Bears' upcoming matchup against the Saints. After, we'll hop in the DeLorean and flashback 15 years to compare the 2005 championship White Sox to the teams of today. It's coming your way on episode 15 now. Welcome in to the Believe in Chicago Sports podcast. Your home for the best Chicago sports talk, in our opinion. I'm Joey Gelman. On the other side of the Skype is Dan Collins. You can follow him on Twitter at TweetDanCollins. I'm on Twitter at Joey Gelman. The show, Believe in Chicago Sports, is on Twitter at Believe in Chicago, part of the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. As Dan mentioned in our lovely tease, we're going to jump into the Bears preview and then uh, talk some White Sox, a topic he knows very well and uh, one that... I know decently well, I would say, even though I bleed cubby blue. So it'll be fun to go down uh, memory lane on that one. But we're going to start with the Bears and still reeling after that Monday night loss. I know it's a much sooner show right after a Bears loss this week. But uh, the focus shifts now. This is the part of that schedule you were worried about. It's the Rams. It's now the Saints this week. And then the Titans. And then you get Minnesota, which shouldn't be too bad, and then a bye. But it's, it's, it's this Rams... Saints, Titans trio that really is going to make or break uh, how you feel about this team and where they may go. And you look towards this game, and I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm af- Don't be afraid. Well, see, here's the thing. They could bounce back like they did last time when, when they had a short week and, and beat Brady in the Bucks. But I'm concerned because this is a team that is – Known for shootouts, has been known for shootouts for years, and this was the offense you were promised by hiring Matt Nagy, and now that it's evidently clear you don't have that, I don't know where you stand as as a team heading into a game that asks for this much offense. Yeah, I, I think that the hopeful rebuttal to that will go, all right, well, let's look in Sunday. Saints traveling in, oh, and the Saints come marching in to Soldier Field. You're looking at maybe, and I hate being a meteorologist when it comes to football games, but a lot of people might be talking about the time of year when it's a little more ground and pound. What are you looking at, mid? What's that? I haven't seen that all year. What 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 is ground and pound? Oh, you, you haven't seen it the past couple seasons, probably <laughs> for the, from for the from the Chicago Bears at least, maybe from their opponents. But you know, you're looking at windy day at Soldier Field. At least that's what the forecast is shaping out to be. Low or high 40s at best, probably more along the lines of, you know, mid to mid to high 30s. So potentially maybe not too many points put up by the New Orleans Saints, if, if I'm being hopeful. Um, and let's just face it, let, what, what, what the Bears are going to need to do anyways to get a victory here, we say it week in and week out, defense is going to have to be dominant anyways, right? The Chicago Bears defense is going to have to keep – future Hall of Fame quarterback Drew Brees, monster running back in Elvin Kamara, hopefully on the sidelines for as long as they can. We'll see if that happens. But just to try to calm your nerves a little bit, Joey, where I'm coming at here is maybe New Orleans sticks a little bit more to the running game. Don't necessarily know if that's great for the Chicago Bears, who even though they've been really good on defense this year, run defense not as strong as the pass defense within this first almost half of the season. Um, but still, I mean, maybe you hope it to shape out that way. And <laughs> it's funny. I, I'm thinking about this game and, you know, I, I'm still thinking about the comments of what Nick Foles apparently told Brian Greasy in, in the broad, the Monday night football broadcast about not feeling confident enough in certain plays that Nagy's calling already knows in his head, it's not going to work. And I think to myself, are we finally, because that went, because that quote went public on Monday Night Football, when if anybody who's interested in football and watching a game, that's what you're watching, is it finally going to be what helps change Matt Nagy's play calling just a little bit? Just a little bit. Because, not because he'll feel he'll need to, and it's less about an ego thing of whether he's finally going to put the ego aside and call better plays or keep his ego still the biggest thing in the room and not change the way he calls plays and not change from being the play caller in general, which all signs are pointing to 
Matt Nagy's still calling the plays for the Chicago Bears offense for a long time. But does that comment and him being asked about it get his wheels spinning upstairs a little more to where, hmm, maybe Foles does have a real point? Because, you know, they can have a conversation on the sideline after a series and talk about it. And Nagy could say, you know what? I'm the coach. Just I get maybe sometimes you're not confident in the plays I'm calling. Just run it. There's a reason why I'm calling these plays. Run it. But when you're asked about it so many times and you have to think about it yourself, and hopefully he can just look at the film and finally figure out a little bit of something that we discussed on the last episode, which was you don't have the personnel to do a lot of these things. The O-line, <laughs> not that good. Not that very good. I'll be nice about it and just say it that way. Not that very good. Nick Foles or Trubisky, which we're already getting into the talks where people are firing back at your three or four week ago statement, Joey, about we still might see Trubisky come back. Who knows? At a five and two record. It's a weird freaking season. It's a weird year. Maybe. But regardless, no matter what you have with those quarterbacks, pretty okay. But maybe you can't do these. Three plus, you know, you're talking five, seven step dropbacks or certain run patterns that you need specific good blockers to execute well on. And the Bears just don't have the personnel to do that. We've seen it. We saw it a lot last year. We've seen it throughout the season this year. And I hope that mixed with the comments, just mixed with whatever else can help benefit the situation. I hope that that's what maybe helps Negi. Just create a different, more of a game plan. I mean, hell, still be you, still be cute from time to time if you want, as long as you tailor your style to the personnel you have. I'm not even asking him to tailor the game plan towards the Bears' strengths in terms of, well, Foles is a guy who could do this. Allen Robinson, if he plays, which not looking too great in the concussion protocol, but okay, maybe it's a Mooney, not just because he could do this. We're going to run this play, but we're going to run my style play a little differently. You know, if that's even possible, because we just don't have strong enough personnel to do it. I'll still have my fingerprint on it. It will still be the Matt Nagy style, but maybe he switches it up a little differently because even though it looks great in practice, it's not going to look good against Aaron Donald and the Rams. It's not going to look good against against a really good New Orleans Saints team. So I'm a little hopeful on that. Maybe he just realizes we don't have the personnel to do this and it's okay. And the fans, I don't know if he's reading into, you know, what people are writing or listening into radio shows or podcasts or anything, but maybe the fans are okay with it too. Been seeing it since last year. It's fine. We just don't have the personnel, but please get a little better. And, you know, I, I would like your thoughts on this, Joey. If, if A-Rob isn't able to play, which like I said, not looking too likely, Mooney, Komet, who who who's the one that really stands up in that receiving core? I mean, Komet was like what tied leading receiver or the leading receiver on Monday night with like two receptions and forty five about forty five yards. Who's the guy you go to if if A Rob can't play? You gotta hope Javon Wims can play football and you activate Riley Ridley and see what you got. I mean, we'll, we'll jump on this point. Then I'll get back to Nagy. Is um. With the receivers, it's funny. Pat Manley, former Bear long snapper, has been saying this entire time, this offense is only running through uh, Allen Robinson. And he's always clamored for what happens if he's out or you don't scheme a game that is in his favor and you have to use everyone else and you have to actually run an offense that uses all of your weapons, even though they may not be the best weapons you were hoping for. They're not They're not the Kelseys and the Tyreek Hill they're this Bears team. But because you'd have to scheme a game without Allen Robinson or a limited Allen Robinson, it would force them to to do everything you're talking about. It would force them to reevaluate how they build a game plan. And that could honestly work in their favor. You get rid of the safety valve, you see what else you got. Because as much as they're 5-2 and two and it's a great cushion, nothing's working. So I put all, 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 all the cards out there. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's something we're always looking for something different besides the quarterback play and besides the defense playing up to their week in and week out, very good and dominant expectations. But 
maybe now if Robinson isn't out there, that is the main thing you look at is just how they do, whether it be divvying up the ball a lot more, whether it be somebody else in that receiving core or at the tight end position, absolutely shining in that moment where the stage is theirs now take over, be one of the, be one of the big receivers out there. Um, Guess what you just look at now? The safety yeah. valve is out, right? <laughs> Your main man is not in the lineup, which could potentially be the case. And if that is the case, how do you respond to that? On the flip side of that football field, though, Michael Thomas and what the hell is going on? Apparently also didn't practice today either. New Orleans Saints might be without him again, which would be pretty big for the Bears if you didn't have to worry about Michael Thomas. If the Saints and Thomas figure it the hell out and he does play Sunday – not going to be too great, even though he's been out since, like, what is it, week one, pretty right. much? So, hasn't played since the very, very beginning of the season. Um, how would that do? Probably fine if, if he's in the lineup, because freaking damn good player. Um, but if he's not and A. Robinson's out, maybe that kind of cancels it cancels itself out for a little bit. But at the end of the day, how optimistic do you feel about the Chicago Bears team not fantastic on Sunday. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just your straight, typical sit on the couch, buckle up. It's going to be a roughish ride. Like no matter what happens this Sunday, and please feel free to disagree with me, but there's going to be something really rocky in that offense. Even if the Bears win, even if they win by, which I don't necessarily see this happening. A couple scores. If you had a bet on anything happening, there's going to be quite a few bumps along the road on offense. And that's whether Robinson plays or not. That's whether Cody White here, who's dealing with that calf injury, plays or not. You might be down one of your better linemen in a, in a shaky enough O-line. You might be without him. You might be without your star receiver. Whether they play or not, you can almost predict that something funky is going to happen. Something questionable, a head scratcher, probably multiple events are going to happen on offense, strictly on that side of the ball where you scratch your head. And when it happens, we'll make note of it and talk about it here on the podcast. But is it weird? Is it bad that I feel that way, that there's going to be some speed bump or two along the road or some head scratcher on Sunday? Am I wrong? Am I right? I don't know where I stand. I, I, th- I just think it's going to happen. Do, do you feel the same way? I don't know. You have to. I mean, it's what they've been all year. I I think there's always something clunky with this offense. There's never a rhythm. There's always something going wrong. And I think that goes back to what we talked about with Matt Nagy of, yes, you want optimism to have him learn from this experience of kind of getting called out accidentally with Brian Greasy and Nick Foles. Yeah. I mean, but but I don't know if if he will, and that's what will be on display. I mean, if you're Matt Nagy, like we've said all the time, He's established himself as a really good head coach. And coming off of Mark Trestman and John Fox, that's a big breath of fresh air. But there are now legitimate credibility issues to him as a play caller, him as a coordinator of this offense. And I, I, I think it would do him a service to reevaluate and figure out how to fix this on his own and, and, and do everything you said. But if he can't do that, this storyline keeps continuing, and then you're going to see the same thing again on Sunday that we've seen all year, if there's just going to be something rocky, something clunky, something weird, it doesn't allow it to mesh. Because I think, you know, you hire Matt Nagy and you're sitting there and you go, why would we ever question his offensive authority or his play calling to where now that was a question asked to him and he actually said, like, it's probably not going to happen, but it wasn't out of the question. And that's kind of a big deal. Uh, maybe it's his own self-reflection of understanding that something is wrong here because it's been the same thing for six games now. So I, I, I'm optimistic too because I want to be. I'm just afraid it, it's it, it's really not going to change. You're going to still see these things. But the perk of Sunday is we can the watch perk. it. Is it is can, with the perk. Is we can watch it with Halloween candy. That's true. That is a fantastic. That's all I got for optimism. (laughs) It's a damn racist lie. My Halloween candy is coming from like Target or Mariano's. Oh, we used to the Target run today. I'm like, I'm not going trick or treating or have any little kids in my life. So I bought a bunch of yummy candy. That's yeah. Well, that's still fair enough. You can make your own Halloween bowl and still get in the spirit of Halloween without doing the whole trick or treating thing. Hell, you could sit on your couch. There you go. You got the pumpkin. 
you could wear a Mike Ditka costume if you want and put a fake or real cigar in your mouth. And, well, you got the mustache. Maybe just keep that. Grow it out a little more. And no, I need to shave. This is frightening. The, the <laughs> video clips this week are an apology from me. I'm sorry. That's okay. Well, the, the listeners will, will, will be fine with that. But it's a good point. And it's one thing I've thought about with Metnagy and the play calling. And you could be a good offensive mind and not call plays. Example, let's take one. The tree, you know, he stems from the Andy Reid tree. Andy Reid considered really good offensive coach. He's totally fine with giving up play calling duties. You know, like he'll he'll do it. Matt Nagy, you could be known as a good offensive head coach and not call the plays. <laughs> I mean, here's something to think about. I, I don't know actually how much this has been brought up. Does he fear potentially, and I would hope not, relieving himself of play calling duties and things being incrementally better? Maybe. Like, does he feel like that would hurt his reputation? Does that feel like that would like hurt just his stock, his own just personal coaching value? If that the Bears offense is just being dreadful. I mean, if you're strictly just looking at the statistics and the numbers. It's not good. It's toward the bottom of the league for the past season and a half already. And if you were to just divvy up and delegate those duties, and like I said, the Bears get incrementally better, does he maybe not want that to happen? I mean, I'm not trying, I'm not even trying to throw assumptions out here, be like Mr. Conspiracy Theory or anything, but I mean, it's something to think about, right? I mean, if you're in the head coach and you're in his shoes, if you're giving up the play calling duties, there's potential for that to happen. There's potential for it to be worse. There's potential for it to be the same. And there's potential for things to be better. Does he almost <laughs> maybe not want to give it up and then things be better? Who knows? But I think it's something worth at least mentioning. Oh, yeah. I and mean, I think it's probably a pride thing. I mean, I think this is a guy that worked his way up and and was able to secure this job because of his offensive ability. So if you're sitting there and saying, well, I'm the coach, but I'm withdrawing myself from calling the offense that I claim to be an expert on, like that's kind of a big deal, especially if they do better without him. And I think there's a there's something to be said about a coach admitting and understanding his faults, his or her faults, and then being able to win because of that. And I think that's a great thing. But that may not be the case at all. And now he's stuck sitting here realizing that the other coaches are better than him. But he's still... But he's still shown for the most part that he's a pretty good coach in terms of what you want your head coach to be in terms of absolutely players rallying around you, keeping that locker room together, creating a good culture. That's what you want your head coach to do in any of the four major right. sports. Yeah, no, I agree. You just want them to be a manager I, of people. Yes, and I think that is all really good not on game day. But I think on game day – he turns that switch off and he becomes the offensive coordinator. And that's where he gets so lost in his play sheet that he can't see the game in front of him. And that's what I think is is his biggest flaw. Yeah, he's a great people person. He's a breath of fresh air for the media. He gets along with the players great. But on Sunday, that script flips of, oh, well, this is working okay. Now let me run my triple reverse option secret to Cordero Patterson and it all goes out the window. Yeah. Even if the secrets work, uh, I don't know. What, <laughs> but that's what I'm saying is he's proven that he could be a pretty good co- head coach. And if you could just help you know, guide an offensive coordinator, guide your offensive staff to getting something going on offense, it's still something you definitely have a fingerprint on. It's still something that you are a part of. And if you're one of the ones who help also keep the culture and the locker room together and energetic – perfectly fine and fighting for each other and not quitting until the very end, which this football team obviously doesn't do. They haven't done ever, you know, under his few seasons here. I'm all for it, but apparently he's not at least, at least not as a lately. So, I mean, all that being said, I don't know if we've provided any reasons for the listeners to be more optimistic. <laughs> no, about, um, which is crazy because they're Sunday. still five and two. We sound like they're winless. Yeah, <laughs> that's just what. It, when you say five and two, just eh. I mean, there's there's nothing they've shown me this year that makes me feel any much 
more confident than just eh. I mean, there's the offensive performance they had against the Falcons when the Falcons falconed, mm-hmm. and that's about it. And, you know, interesting fact, there's still, even after that disaster of a game, three offensive points, three, a field goal, that's all you got on offense. That technically, even, I mean, even the three really – if special teams doesn't execute and your kicker doesn't execute there in Cairo Santos, you don't it's get that zero. <laughs> right. That's zero. <laughs> but anyways, where I was going with this was there's still plenty of people out there and good old Bears faithful. Maybe yourself, Joey. I'm not going to include myself in this, though, that thinks this could be like a legitimate Super Bowl contender, at least getting there to the Super Bowl and winning the NFC. Strictly shocker because of the defense and – yeah, I mean, like, this defense can win you a lot of games if, if they really show up and they take the ball away, but I don't know how confident I feel yeah. on that. And there's just, going, there's just going to need to be way more on offense because no matter how awesome this defense can be, even if you could account for a, a turnover and, and six points out of it, whether it's a pick six or an Eddie Jackson fumble recovery to the end zone like we saw on Monday – that defense could still be very, very good out there and still give up three, four scores. I mean, that's that's basically what we saw on Monday mm-hmm. night. Like, just because you give up a score a quarter doesn't mean you're having a bad day on defense, especially if you're just out there all the damn time. Right. So that's just the NFL we live in. The Bears can have a fantastic performance on defense and still give up 20-plus points, meaning on offense – you have to find a way to put up multiple points a half, put a nice crooked number up on that board. And here we are with just three points on offense on Monday Night Football. Not too excited. Yeah, and, and, and I think that conversation of the the looming Super Bowl, I don't know, the, the Super Bowl aspiration, the Super Bowl appearance, whatever you want to call it, I, I think it's because... That's what we were told, and that's the blueprint of you've built this defense that's phenomenal since 2018 that's supposed to be there to win you championships alongside this growing, innovative offense, and you're supposed to be in that Mahomes window of you're in a Trubisky Mm -hmm. window from 18 to, to, to now where you have him under full control, and you win. And... It, it, it's, it's a difficulty of recognizing of this window's probably shot. And I know that's that's like sad to say, but this team's going to probably make the playoffs, but they're, 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 they're not achieving the lofty expectations that I think them themselves had. And us as fans, because we were told that this was building. You invested in a young, hotshot quarterback to win in, the, in, in a four- to five-year window allotted to where you can afford the pieces around him build the defense build an offense and then once you pay your quarterback if you win another if you make it or win another one okay great but you got that one that you built everything around and because they didn't do that and we were told they were supposed to that's where that disconnect comes of yeah this defense is super bowl good because that's what they're were built for it's just that everything else didn't work so it's 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 a sad story we've seen all too all, all too often with this team yeah, and I mean, obviously, before we transition over here and rewind ourselves back to a much better time in Chicago sports history of the year 2005, if you don't want <laughs> or maybe if you want to read some entertaining stuff or look into it, for whatever reason, I've been finding on the Internet lately a lot of Matt Nagy, Mark Tressman comparisons. <laughs> That's <laughs> just frightening. In ter- just in terms of pure numbers and, you know, X amount of games among the two and yeah, you took the words out of my my mouth. Frightening enough comparisons, and if there's one thing you don't want Matt Nagy to be, you don't want him to be the Mark Tress, the next Mark Tressman. Don't think he's going to no. be, but still, it's just the fact that you can make Matt Nagy and Mark Tressman comparisons and not be called just a total clown is frightening. Once again, I think Matt Nagy will be strides and strides better than Mark Tressman ever was. Just way he's leading by a couple furlongs at the end of this. But still, as of where you sit today, you can't call somebody a 
bleeping idiot because they make certain connect the dots statistics and, and present them. You know what I mean? Like, it, it doesn't hold much water because it's just still such a small sample size for Negi, and there's still all very long way to go in this. And I think once again, he'll be furlongs ahead of Mark Trestman when his coaching career is all said and done. And Matt, and Matt Nagy's going to be in the NFL a hell of a lot longer than Mark Trestman, but still it's just funny that people are throwing out those comparisons. And, and while they seem to be, in your head quite silly it's like ooh, i hate that they even like can hold a little bit of water together I, I just hate that that can even be that there could be multiple numbers compared between the two yeah it's awful i mean the bears have allowed that to happen unfortunately with with what's going on i mean Nagy's obviously has a much better record and 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 has taken this team in the playoffs but from a sheer offensive perspective on what was expected from mark tressman and jay cutler together with super bowl aspirations what was expected from mitchell trubisky and Matt Nagy in this window of of, of comp- competition, it's getting pretty dire this year. Like I, I've, we've seen some bad Bears offenses, but when the offense is supposed to be better, I've never seen it this bad. Well, Where, have we ever seen a good one? We talk about it all the time. Have you ever seen a good one, a, a Jay Cutler offense? Uh, yeah, it's the, best, the best Bears offense you would have ever seen is one of his probably. Years. Yeah, when when they were when they were seven and one and he broke his thumb and then they. What was that, 2012? And then they didn't do so good the rest of the way, necessarily. Right, because Caleb Haney was the backup, and they went, yeah. 2010-2012 was probably their best output, I would yeah. say. That's what you got. <laughs> we, we, we remind ourselves of it all the time on this show, that that's what you have as a Bears fan. Yeah, it's a sad, sad fate we have. So, so we're winning Sunday, then, huh? Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> that's what it all comes down to right so we're winning on sunday got it check um actually quick prediction i, I could just see i could just see this getting really bad really fast honestly i can and with the idea that Allen robinson potentially doesn't play with an already subpar performing o-line where you might not have one of the better if not your best lineman play uh, it's it just doesn't seem likely that the bears necessarily come out victorious if those are the circumstances uh despite it being potentially ground and pound weather out there in soldier field on sunday afternoon early evening however you want to explain it um yeah I, i'm just still going new orleans saints to new orleans saints to still continue with what i feel is going to be a really bumpy next couple weeks mm-hmm. for chicago bears football yeah, I agree. I mean, the Saints have scored 30 points in five out of six games, and last week they were at 27, so they just missed it. How so, does that feel? That must feel good. It's amazing, right? Yeah. So so with that said, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's probably a, a 30 to 14. i got to give them 30 because of the trend. So the 30 to 14 Saints, because I think that's just how it's going to go. It's one of those. It's not snowing yet, so I think there's still potential for offense, and 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 the bears haven't sh- if they show it to me please do it but but for right now i i i can't be convinced otherwise i mean i could see new orleans i could see the new orleans saints only putting up only 21 24 only because they might not need to put a bunch more control the clock stay out there get a couple good camara runs camara screens and go from there once you take once you've taken the lead it's that's just one thing. If there's one key to victory, one main key to victory for the Chicago Bears, I would honestly say just don't fall behind early. It's common sense, but don't fall too behind too quickly. Maybe you know if you do fall behind, it's only by a field goal or something like that. But you don't want to you don't want to get a big deficit early because then once again you have. Nick Foles throwing 30 plus 35 passing attempts. So you don't want to make it a passing, you know, about catching up and just airing it out because whether it's Foles, whether it's Trubisky, we don't, the Chicago Bears don't have a quarterback on their roster where you, where you feel confident enough of them having to throw 30 to 35 plus pass attempts a game. And you think that that's going to give you a better percentage chance of victory. 
So please, Bears, don't fall behind early. If anything, get the lead. Please come out to a to a 7-0-10-0-10. I can't give them multiple touchdowns. I can give them multiple scores <laughs> early, but I cannot give them multiple touchdowns. Not allowed. Come out to like a 10-0 lead or something like that and just don't fall behind. Make it to where, okay, Nagy, this is your this is your time now to really put in the running game no matter what because if the Bears get the lead, it's harder for him to abandon at that point. It, it gives you more reason to stick with it, but if they fall behind just like they did against just like they did against the Rams, unfortunately you're not going to have too much of a choice than to throw more passing attempts. And while I would love a Bears quarterback, who I would like to see you go out there and fire it away, and we are victorious on that. We don't have the personnel. We don't have the makeup. Yeah, you're right. So let's move on to something fun then. Let's do that. I'm all about it. Let's go. All right. So the DeLorean. <laughs> 15 years ago this week, the White Sox were your World Series champions, as much as ESPN wants to forget it. They, uh, they did actually win that World Series in one of the more impressive runs in any sports playoff history. The most impressive run in baseball history. That too. So I think it's time we take a look back at that World Series and try to relate it to today because the game has changed tremendously. And we saw that obviously in this past World Series, which was one of the more bizarre, chaotic endings you will ever see in the history of sports, which we can get into as well. But I mean, Wild. first off, since 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 you're the resident Sox fan on this show, what's the what's the first thing that comes to mind now that it's been 15 years since that beautiful Southside moment? It's exactly that. That wow, it's been 15 years. <laughs> what? Just crazy. And I think because every time you know that special October 26 date comes up on the calendar, I'm always reminded of. Just how that team won. You know, you, you think about the small ball factors. That, that's what they were. They were the Aussie ball team that year. So many one to nothing victories. So many just one run victories. That's just how they got it done. They played a lot of small ball. Pitching wise, it, it was almost like every single starting pitcher on that staff and even relief pitchers, it seemed like that year, had the season of their life which happens a lot of times when a team wins the World Series. Everything just clicks. But for whatever reason, especially on that pitching staff, whether it be in the starting five or in the bullpen or in the mix of closing pitchers they had that they had um, that season going all the way down to Bobby Jenks toward the end, the big tall guy, as Ozzie Guillen you know, called for him in the, in the, in the postseason that year, it's, it goes to show you that how much the game has actually really changed, though. Because you look into it and let's go first offensively. They beat you the majority. Even though they had a lot of long balls that year, they were still known as a small ball, gutted out type of offense. A whole lot of bunting, a whole lot of stealing bases, mostly with Scott Pesetnik there at the top of the order, getting on, stealing bases. Then you had Tadahito Aguchi either, you know, attempting to bunt him over or hitting it the opposite way. Maybe it's an opposite, you know, infield grounder, opposite field infield grounder that moves besetting over. And you have somebody along the lines of a Carl Everett or Jermaine die sacrifice, slicing him in sacrifice, slicing. Look at, look at that verbiage. I just did there hitting a sacrifice fly to drive made a new in. baseball term. I kind of like it. Sacrifice flying or whatever I said, um, sacrifice we'll slicing, slicing. There you go. We'll, we'll, we'll coin it here on the show. Um, but that has changed a lot. <laughs> like, if you go back to 2005, where the Chicago White Sox won 99 regular season games, the data and the analytics would be so against on so many things they did that season. For example, the opposite, just trying to hit an opposite field infield grounder by Tadahito Aguchi or the bunt. So much bunting that year, whether it be Aguchi, whether it be Pablo Azuna, whether it be Timo Perez, all of them went up. And if you had Scott Pesetnik or another speedster on that lineup, in that lineup, or just somebody with average enough speed on second base, you were either bunting or you were finding some way to unofficially or officially sacrifice your AB to get him over to the third and get him in. The analytics would be so against that. 
<laughs> it's not even funny, but the White Sox still go out and win 99 games. And why did that work for them? It's because you have to have absolute dominant pitching. And that's exactly what they did. That's exactly what they had going into that postseason. And before we get into and reminisce how that postseason went down, it's important to revisit how that entire postseason went down, where round one in the ALDS, you're facing the reigning champion, Boston Red Sox, and completely kick their ass in game one by a score of 14 to two. And then you turn around and you win game two, five to four, take it over to Fenway Park. And you have Orlando Hernandez, El Duque, who comes out in the ever so popular bases loaded situation and <laughs> and just gets out of the jam right there. Former Yankee himself, El Duque Hernandez, coming in, making a relief appearance in Fenway Park and getting the White Sox out of that base loaded jam. And then you go over once again to something that we will just never, ever see again. I'm confident enough in saying that in the history of the postseason, especially in a postseason series, when after a game one loss to the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, they were that year, um, you you lose game one to them at then U.S. Cellular Field, not guaranteed rate, and then you win the next four games all courtesy of a complete game shutout by your starting pitchers. That as well will never happen again, which we'll touch on just soon enough because I know you want to get to it with the the early exiting of Snell yesterday simply because the computer says so. Um, but yeah, you you that is just going to be unheard of. You're never going to see four straight complete games again in the ALCS to get yourself to the postseason. No way. Bring in the guy who could throw 97, 98 in the sixth, seventh, eighth and ninth inning. And then you go to the World Series, and all was history from there. And that's just how they got the job done, with excellent pitching and timely hitting. Small ball, right? The timely hitting is what they called it. And I love that even though the pitching was so damn dominant, and including the bullpen, there was many – you're talking about Cliff, Polite, Neil Kotz, guys that just had absolute career years and setting up guys like Shingo Takatsu – in the beginning, do you remember him coming Mr. out to Dom, Zero, who who really wasn't there much of that 2005 season? Because then they had a, I mean, the, the Sox had like a little bit of a revolving door at closing pitcher that year, and like I said, it ended with Bobby Jenks at the toward the tail end. Um, but still, you look at that, and there's so many statistics that also would have went against what they did with those four straight complete games in the playoffs, especially more to the point. When once again you were having relief pitchers that had really that had career years that year, Bobby Jenks is in your bullpen who could throw ninety eight to a hundred plus miles an hour, and he didn't see the light of day <laughs> in those four games. And it's not like there were blowouts, so the numbers just won't support it. And ref, you know, refresh your memory to not fifteen years ago, but just ever so recently. Game six of the 2020 World Series. And what the hell was Kevin Cash thinking? It all ties together. Well, oh, fast yeah. forward 15 years. And totally something that if, if you if you flash back to 2005, Snell's going, it doesn't matter if he's already has 120 pitches at that time, which he had sub 80 at the time they took him out. He's going out there till his arm falls off. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I... I think there was a, or excuse me, there needs to be a really healthy balance of analytics and baseball gut feel. It's just like we talk about Matt Nagy. You got to have a feel for the game while also sticking to what the analytics in your play sheet tell you. And I think, or even in life, I mean, you need a balance of EQ and IQ. One or the other, all the way, you're not a complete, you know, person. And so, I I think you looked at 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 last night's game. In in comparison to the 05 White Sox, and you're right, it would have never occurred. And it's showing you how much of a reliance there is now on statistics, which I think is incredibly important and valuable. I'm not like hawk here. I'm not going anti-analytics. But but th- there there is something to be said about managing and building your your team and building a game plan 
for what's actually going on in the game itself. And and, yeah. and and there is credence to that. And so I think you see someone in Nazigian that understood that that balance. And I know the analytics weren't as good as they were now, as they are now, but he, he understood that and saw that through. And, and you see something like last night where you go, this guy's dominating. I don't care what the stats say. He's pitching the best game of life and he's had 70 pitches. It, it it literally was a spitting image of Game 7 for the Cubs World Series, not to flip the script to the other side of the town, but you have Kyle Hendricks cruising in Game 7, yeah. and you took him out because you already had your predetermined script of who was going to pitch, yeah. when they were going to pitch, what scenario they were going to come in in, and besides a God-given rain delay, you could have had the exact same outcome as the Rays had last yeah. night where you overmanaged this thing to oblivion, and it cost you. And the players were pissed about it for the Rays. Pissed about Would it, it. Wouldn't you have been? Yeah. <laughs> the league was. Fans were. Everyone right. was. Right. Like, 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 I loved when we saw in, in the Astros' first World Series before they were cheaters, where A.J. Hinch and, and everyone was always talking about, oh, we got to do the bullpen here, we got to do this and that. And he said, no. Like, I'm sticking with Charlie Morton. And he pitched his ass off. And it was one of those times where you go, he went against what you're supposed to do by the numbers, the analytics, and managed a game in a way that was representative of what he was seeing on the field. He took everything into consideration, but you have to put it all together. And yeah. and, and I feel like now it, it's just like everything else in the world right now. You're the one side or the other. You can't meld them together. Two things to that is, one, it always ends up bringing up the conversation where now you start walking the fine line where if you're that type of baseball manager – where you already have this preconceived game plan where no matter what, you are definitely sticking to it, no matter how the momentum feels, no matter how the pitcher is pitching or how the batter is hitting, you're going to do this at this time of the game. How important is the managerial position even then, besides just keeping the clubhouse together? That If it's just running the data and computer says, this is the result, this is the game plan, and you stick to it to a T, then what is the point? I mean, you can even be majority analytics and then the rest gut, you know, it can be 60, 40, 70, 30, however you want to try to break it up in your head. But, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be this concrete, perfect balance, but there does, more to your point, need to be some kind of balance there. At the end of the day, you don't have it's it's you don't have this computer Madden or MLB the show simulation going on where all right this happens this outcomes this is what you have if you put it all through a computer and you play a video game that's the outcome you'll have but these are real life humans out there in real life situations and it's not this just computer generated game or you're not playing PlayStation and MLB the show like there's some human aspect here to it so if you take all of the human aspect out of it, those are the type of instances that are going to occur because you're putting no, you're not, you're not humanizing any part of it. It's right. just strictly data. Yeah, I can't which, imagine another another scenario where you'd see two pitchers on the same team for an entirety of a playoff run pitching a complete game. Not anymore. It's gonna. It, it, <laughs> It's it's getting less and less likely to happen. For what it's for what Burley and, and Garland and Garcia that. and Contreras and all of them did to have four in one series? Oh, four, yeah, no shot. But even but I'm thinking even like four, no what, what if it was four in a in in a in a span of of what what they play twelve games? I don't even think that's even could happen again. It's just it, you know yeah, playoff baseball bullpen total. game, right? Yeah, they go playoff baseball. Oh, well, then he's pitching three innings and we're going to the bullpen. It's like. No, like you don't have to. There's another thing to that. And this is something that I've thought about a lot. If you say, and I'll believe it, that the third time around in the batting order, a starting pitcher is most likely to get hit then, or, you know, most likely to give up more runs in that scenario for multiple reasons. One, it's Joey's third time up at the plate and he's already getting a good read. Uh, you know, your arm wear and tear, maybe getting a little tired. So, Batter having a better read on you and on the on the flip side, toe in the rubber, maybe you're getting a little more worn down. Still, like 
that might be the sample size of the past few decades or a few centuries, however, you know, how, how much data you compiled. But if you're talking about Blake Snell by himself, where, oh, well, this is just what we do. We never let him go past this point. That's not that great of a sample size then. Like, let him face, you know, a batting order multiple, like more than three times, five, six, seven times. Like, well, if, you, if he did it once and got rock, rocked up, or even if he did it twice and that's when he happened to give up a couple runs, like, that's not that grand of a sample size anyways. <laughs> like, what? I, I don't know. It's sometimes you, you, you just have to let it ride. And in one of those cases, you, you have to let it ride. I mean, under... 80 pitches and you want to talk analytics. It was the, I forgot who it was. I apologize. Whoever tweeted it out yesterday to remind everybody, but the next three hitters coming up at the top of the order, Oh, for six and not just Oh, for six, but Oh, for six with six strikeouts. What, what are you doing? And in a one, nothing ball game, you also have to read, your offense and you got to you have to respect your opponent and maybe we only get one more run here maybe two tampa bay ended up getting no more runs but we have a very very slim lead here and let's just ride this out also lastly before you know you you could give more two cents on this joey is if you are going to lose in the world series and just let it be on blake snell let it be on your Cy Young pitcher, even if it's analytically what you haven't done all season long. It's the last game of the season he'll pitch. Blake Snell will not pitch again until 2021. And he's thrown, he threw under 80 pitches at that point. He gave up a single. <laughs> he gave up a single before you took him out, and the next three hitters coming up were combined 0 for 6 with six strikeouts. Like, keep it on his shoulders. It would be different if at that point, he had thrown 105, 115 pitches. Totally different. Pitch counts up there. They just got the they just got the hit. Even though they're all for six with six, six strikeouts, it's going to be a different style, Blake Snell. That's totally different. But he was under 100, under 90, under 80 pitches. What? Ride it out. Yeah, I agree. I don't. I don't really know what happened it, it's just it's a case of kind of over managing and not understanding that balance i think it's that simple and so that leads me to my question it goes back to the to the white Sox of all full circle it has to if if ozzy Guillen was able to even though like i said analytics weren't what they were but if he was able to understand that balance understand how to manage eq and iq manage analytics and and, and gut baseball feel why is he not managing right now? I've yet to have a good answer as to out of everyone that's been recycled in the MLB. Yeah. I cannot figure out for the life of me why a World Series championship manager like Guillen, who did what they did on the greatest run in MLB playoff history, can't find work. It's a really good question. Yeah, no, I, I I don't know if his list is short and maybe teams he would want to you know, retire from being a baseball analyst to go back into the dugout four. I don't know if he would just jump at any type of offering. You know, I don't know if he would be picky on location. I don't know if he would be picky on team makeup. You know, how how good is the team to begin with? Um, but I, I could definitely see him being a manager again. I really could. And I think he's somebody you'd probably be able to trust with the analytics. You know, Ozzy Guillen, just from the type of anal, an, analyst that he is, on the game of baseball and even the manager that he was during his days as an MLB manager, he strikes me as a guy who still, while he would buy into the analytics would still be more, more feel than analytics. He'd be more gut than analytics where maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's the answer to your question. Maybe in any kind of talks he's ever had with any type of club is maybe they get that feel on him. I mean, you so then why that. is La Russa being considered for the job? <laughs> He's being considered for the Chicago White Sox job. Is has he ever? He hasn't interviewed with anybody else over the years, has he? Since he retired after the 2011 season, That's right? True. I mean, it, it's this job. It's his ties with the White Sox, his ties with Reinsdorf, apparently, <laughs> and that's that's what it is. But no, that that's even more important is the White Sox. You know, you would hope were paying attention last night to what Kevin Cash did 
it was the move. It's the move known around the world. <laughs> what happened in the World Series last night, strategy wise? <laughs> a whole lot of other things went down, but strategy wise, that was that was the move of the year, and it's going to be heavily criti- heavily criticized, rightfully so. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're the Chicago White Sox front office, you have to ask yourself: Do we want our next manager to be like that? Where if he was in that situation, he or she would make that move they would do the same thing kevin cash did or do we want them not just because of hindsight would we want them to be more with their gut and no matter what your answer is then you look at one of your apparent candidates and tony la Russa, who apparently spoke with the club is he that is he somebody who would buy the analytics to a certain point and if you want him to or to not go the rest of the distance in a situation like that is that who you want? Yeah, that, that's what's tough because you look at you even look at Kevin Cash's resume. I mean, like they, I don't mean to go all on Rays. I know we're talking White Sox, but but it's that idea of it all connects. They they did what they did all year, and they got to the World Series because of that. And you look at that and go, okay, like I get why there was a script and why they ran their team like they did. But you also look at someone like Lau for the Rays who couldn't find himself all year the manager kept having that gut feeling of he will turn it around and sure enough in the postseason he did so there are glimpses of that balance but it's almost like you need a meeting of the minds of an entire balance like if you have a manager that leans one way you got to surround it with everyone else that leans the other way and come up with a solution to best manage the game because you can't go into everything scripted we've seen that in football we've seen it in baseball you 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 can't do it so so i i think you you have to build a culture and a a, a team that can that can do both and i think this white Sox team now 15 years later kind of exhibits that they're not they're not one way or the other they're a fun swaggy team that can operate a game on feel and trends and tendency and and gut reaction, but then you also know exactly where to put and place someone when you need the analytics to solve to solve your problem. Even still, more going back to your original point there about it's what the Rays have done all season. Well, game four, game fifty, game sixty. That's different than game six of the World Series when you're down three games to two. At that point, you you may or may not need the status quo. You may need something special that night to get you into game seven. You might need Snell to go one, two, three more innings than he's used to in order for you to win the game. Hell, nobody was... Nobody's out here really necessarily saying that Cash should have done whatever he could have to get a complete game shutout from Snell, but you could have at least let him ride out the sixth. Right. You, I agree. You could have you could have at least done that, and odds are you were probably going to need that to win that game. They put up one run on right. offense. So you probably were going to need something a little special out of your starting pitcher, out of your Cy Young award-winning pitcher and Blake Snell go out there and let him potentially do something special. And you know what? If he kept Snell out there and he walked the next two batters and then gave up a home run, I don't know how much you really question that. If anything, maybe you would maybe go, wow, isn't it crazy how the analytics work? I wonder if they took him. But I mean, that's all a bunch of stuff that could have, should have. I mean, it's all just a bunch right. of, all just a bunch of nothing at this point, but whether or not what the situation would have been, just, just you need something special. It's Game Six of the World Series when you're down three to two. It's not Game Seven of the. It's different when you do it in the regular season, mm-hmm. especially in a game like baseball, where in a normal season you do have 162 games. If you keep going and sticking to that strategy the entire time, then I'll believe the data more in terms of that's the best way to try to do it. Every single time, because it's going to probably give you the best amount of wins. For example, Snell pitches 30 to 30. Let's just give him 30 starts on the year. If you stick with that strategy every single time and you get that kind of performance out of Snell, you're going to win 20, at least 20 of those games. You're not going to win them all. You'll still have regular season games where you take Snell out in that position and you lose because the reliever gives up some runs, 
and your offense doesn't get another run. You're going to have those kind of games too. But if you stick to the plan and if you stick to what the data is telling you, in the long run, you'll get good results. But in game six, hell, even just game one of the World Series, it's no longer a long run type of situation. You're in it. It's a sprint now. More so even in game six. It is now a sprint to the finish line. This isn't a long, drawn-out, 162-game process where you need to and should trust the data. There's times to trust the data, which is the long haul and the cross-country races. When you're in just a few meters worth of a sprint, that's not when you do it. All right, Dan for manager. <laughs> I'm in. I love Dan for manager. No, it's it's it, it's fascinating to analyze it because the game has changed so much in the last 15 years. And to see it all play out on display in a couple of World Series now, and especially 2020s, it's, it's fascinating to relive what the White Sox did because it's probably never going to never gonna happen happen again. But you you mentioned special moments, and before we, we, we wrap this thing up, mm-hmm. what is the one kind of go-to memory you have when you think of that White Sox World Series? Because I have, I have two. Man. Whew. Just the World Series, just, just those four games? The run, the, the whole World Series run. All right. From game one of the regular season all the way to game four of the World Series? Sure. Man. There's so many. There's the walk-off home run against against the Dodgers when they were wearing the throwback jerseys in the regular season. There's the ass-kicking of the Red Sox in game one, the El Duque performance. There's the drop third strike. There's the Uribe play. Um, there, the four straight complete games in and of itself is a moment, you could say. So I think what sticks out the most is... The four straight complete games, I really do. I mean, those starting pitchers, for the I mean, they had just career year. I mean, that whole staff. I mean, Contreras, who in the regular season just when the White Sox went on that brief little stretch of of you know losing baseball that they had toward the end of the year, Jose Contreras got him over that hump. Mark Burley's Mark Burley. You have Freddie Garcia, John Garland that year, and me. So I would say it's the four straight complete games that is rivaled, funny enough, with another pitching performance, um, El Duque getting out of the bases loaded jam at Fenway Park. And those are good ones. And, I mean, I know for most White Sox fans, too, it's obviously at the moment they won the World Series. But but for me, I just, for some reason, distinctly remember, like, sitting on my couch and watching that Pesednik homer in Game 2 of the ALCS. And it was just so... So improbable, <laughs> so unlikely. I mean, you yeah. know, Petsednik is like a, you know, Brian Roberts type prototypical leadoff man yeah. that was never going to hit a home run. And then he launches it. And I think that was just one of those moments where like, holy crap, like, did he just do that? Like, that was incredible. And then the Jeff Blum homer in the next game was so something. Like it, he hit it at like seven in the morning. Right. 14 innings. Yeah. And it's like, you just, you, you, you just sat there and. Those are kind of those two improbable moments where you go, like this team, this team has it all this year. I mean, when, when you have guys contributing like that that aren't really supposed to, it's supposed to be Konerko and Die, and 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 it and it was those guys, those 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 rounded out players that were there to make your team special. And those are those are two for me that were a lot of fun, if you can believe it, like 15 years ago, October 26th. Yeah, and even before we'll outro it, the Paul Konerko Grand Slam. Mark Burley, who apparently they kicked around after having a couple beers in the dugout and told him to go out there and cl- and finish out that Jeff Blum home run game. <laughs> like, what? The stories that came out of that year of Mark Burley just tossing a couple back, and now he has to go finish that game out and just absolutely just unreal uh, type of ride for the Chicago White Sox. And still, you know, you connect the dots here in the World Series and a managerial choice and a managerial decision. Managers do matter to the point of you got to make that call. You might be in the World Series one day, and, well, hopefully you're in the World Series. <laughs> That's where you want the White Sox to end up again, and you might have to make that decision of, do you manage like this is for the long haul, or is this for the short sprint here in the World Series? And that, my friends, is going to do it here for the episode. We start with a not-so-optimistic, even though we tried staying optimistic, point on Chicago Bears football 
wrap it up and bring everything full circle here with the 2020 World Series just concluding. Uh, congrats to the Los Angeles Dodgers on winning that, finally bringing a trophy home. You know, we do a little revisiting of the Chicago White Sox, and hopefully they can end their 15-year drought as well. For Joey Gelman, who you can find on Twitter, at Joey Gelman. I'm Dan Collins. You can find me at TweetDanCollins. And you can find this beautiful show on Twitter as well, Believe in Chicago on Twitter, at Believe in Chicago. Listen to this beautiful show, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.